You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review for Tuesday, August 31st, 2021. I'm Coda Babcock. And I'm Ivy Winfrey. And you're tuned in to KCSU Fort Collins. On today's show, Ellie Shannon explains updates and campus news. And then I'll be discussing a situation with COVID-19 and how it's hitting Larimer County in local news. After that, Eliza Droder will update us on CSU's athletics. And then you'll be hearing a conversation between Facebook spokesperson Kaylee Susser and myself about the new Facebook campus platform for college and university students. Then, Coda tells us about the European Union's new recommendations with allowing U.S. citizens in for travel, as well as how national disasters are impacting the U.S. After that, we'll hear from the Department of Communication Studies Chair Greg Dickinson and Assistant Professor of Communication Studies Morgan Johnson about Johnson Studies and Racial Injustice through the Speaking Well podcast. After that, I'll be giving new information on COVID-19 in our local community. To conclude the show, Coda explains how two infamous Silicon Valley startup founders are preparing for fraud charges in court. And I'll be telling you about the weirdest stories I've found recently. Let's move right into campus and local news. Hey everyone, it's Ellie Shannon here with KCSU. The second week of school has been looking similar to our first with everyone still adjusting to the full campus. This Friday, Colorado State University plays its first football game of the season, and kickoff is at 7 p.m. The Rams face South Dakota State University, and parking is being adjusted for the game. Students that must relocate will receive an email from Athletics. According to CSU's communications staff, Vice President and Chief Financial Officer Lynn Johnson is set to retire this year. Johnson spent a tremendous 18 years at CSU, with President Joyce McConnell stating, she's had an enormous job and she has performed it with such grace and skill that she makes it look easy. We will miss Lynn so much, not just professionally, but personally because she is principled and deeply committed to CSU. Johnson's official last day will be somewhere between March 1st and June 30th of next year, but more word to come on that. CSU's long-standing tradition of the fall address will be a little different this Wednesday, September 1st. The CSU community is invited to a reflective event at 11 a.m. on the Lori Student Center's West Lawn. The CSU community wanted to address and acknowledge challenges from the past year and solutions for this year. Lunch will be provided for all attendees. Signs directing students to gender-neutral bathrooms are now in every building on campus. These signs include QR codes and aim to track how many students are searching for all gender restrooms. They are also available at the CSU Foothills campus. For more information on locations, visit prideresourcecenter.colostate.edu. Also, make sure to tune in to the Rocky Mountain Review Tuesdays and Thursdays from 4 to 5 p.m. Thanks for listening to your campus news with me. I'm Ellie Shannon, and this is KCSU on 90.5 FM. Hello there, my name is Ivy Winfrey, and this is your local news for today. Larimer County's hospitals are reaching maximum ICU capacity as the Delta variant of COVID-19 spreads quickly. According to Sadie Swanson at the Coloradoan, the county reported 100% of intensive care unit beds were full Thursday and 95% on Friday, with almost half of those patients being treated for COVID-19. There are 81 ICU beds spread across four hospitals in Larimer County. On Thursday, all 81 beds were in use, with 36 patients, or 44% of those patients, being treated for COVID-19. UC Health has 230 patients hospitalized statewide who have tested positive for COVID-19 or have a test pending, spokesperson Kelly Tracer says, with 90 of those patients in ICUs as of Friday afternoon. Tracer says, quote, The last time we were caring for this many COVID-19 patients was early January, end quote. In UC Health's Northern Colorado hospitals, which includes hospitals in Larimer County, Greeley, and Steamboat Springs, there are about 75 people hospitalized with COVID-19, and 40 of those people in ICU. About 54% of UC Health's COVID-19 patients in Larimer County are being treated in ICUs, Tracer says. Larimer County hospitals have progressive care unit beds that are able to use when ICUs reach maximum capacity, but 24 of those beds are also already in use, Larimer County Health Director Tom Gonzalez said Thursday afternoon. Gonzalez says that the problem is that they don't have enough capacity 
for medical surges and that they're going to have to most likely start turning other hospital rooms into ICU care or otherwise find out a way to expand their ICU capacity. The county's hospitals have reached maximum capacity during other surges in the pandemic, but this time is different, Gonzalez said. Hospitals in Larimer County and nationwide are facing staffing shortages, so while they may be able to physically add beds, they can't add patients unless they have the staff to treat them. Banner Health spokesperson Sarah Quayle says, quote, We are working hard to hire co- and contract labor and deploy extra resources where they are needed. The current surge is impacting hospitals across the nation, so we're trying to hire from the same pool, end quote. Larimer County is considered to have a high risk of community transmission of COVID-19 by the CDC. Here are the CDC's recommendations. 1. Get vaccinated as soon as possible if eligible. Wear a mask indoors or in crowded outdoor spaces whether or not you are vaccinated. Ensure your mask fits snugly and consider a surgical or KN95 mask. Ask everyone to wear a mask indoors. Monitor yourself and your family and stay home if you have symptoms. Get tested if you have COVID-19 systems or if you have been exposed. Postpone indoor gatherings. If you do plan to gather, consider requiring everyone to be vaccinated and moving activities outside. Minimizing the number of households. Encourage remote work options if possible. Practice social distancing and choose businesses and organizations that are using best practices to reduce transmission. The 8th Judicial District Attorney has cleared Larimer County Sheriff's deputies of charges involved with the July shooting in Berthoud. According to Sarah Kyle at the Coloradoan, deputies had responded to reports of a drunken driver about 10 p.m. July 28th, according to previous news releases, and exchanged gunfire with the driver at about 10.10 p.m. at 2nd Street and Welsh Avenue in Berthoud. No deputies were injured in the shooting. The man was shot in the shoulder but did not have life-threatening injuries. 8th Judicial District Attorney Gordon McLaughlin says in an opinion letter that the deputies acted lawfully, saying, quote, Deputies spent considerable time using verbal techniques in an attempt to resolve the situation without use of force. Deputies only returned fire as a response to being fired upon, end quote. The man deputies shot faces multiple criminal charges related to the incident. He was not identified by the Coloradoan due to their lack of plans to cover his criminal case. In his letter, McLaughlin said a review of body camera footage from the evidence, quote, showed deputies gave commands to the man and put both his hands outside his vehicle, noting their commands were, quote, clear and audible. The letter says that, quote, Video evidence shows the man did not comply with numerous commands. Deputies remained at a distance and continued to give verbal commands for approximately seven and a half minutes until he fired a single round in their direction of the four deputies on the scene. End quote. Two deputies involved returned fire, and the man was struck in, was struck in the shoulder with a single round but did not sustain life-threatening injuries, according to McLaughlin's letter. After the shooting, the man dropped his weapon but refused to comply with deputies' uh, commands, McLaughlin wrote, adding that one of the deputies deployed his taser, which he said allowed deputies to take the man into custody and give him medical aid until EMTs arrived and transported him to a hospital. In his letter clearing the deputies, McLaughlin said that they, quote, faced a clear and imminent threat to their own lives and the lives of their fellow deputies and the safety of civilians in the vicinity, end quote, which legally justified their use of, use of force. McLaughlin's clearing of the deputies comes after a month-long investigation into the shooting by the 8th Judicial District Critical Incident Response Team, or CERT. That's it for local news today. After the break, we'll be hearing from Eliza Droller in sports. You're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. Stay tuned.
Eliza Drotar, and this is your RMR Sports Update. In women's volleyball at the Whiteout game, CSU lost to Northwestern three sets to one. Their next match will be Tuesday against Northern Colorado in Greeley at 6 p.m. Women's soccer had a scoreless match against South Dakota. Next match for them being Thursday against Northern Colorado in Greeley at 7 p.m. Rams football is on the horizon. The season begins at this Friday for the Green Out game. The Rams will be playing against San Diego State at 7 p.m. at Canvas Stadium. Rams cross country. Their first meet will be on September 3rd in Cheyenne for the Wyoming Open. If you want student tickets to see your Rams at home, you can go to csurams.evenue.net. If you are interested in intramural sports like women's or men's volleyball or basketball are available, along with paintball for co-ed, women's water polo, cornhole, and more. If you are interested in any of these sports, go to CSU Rec Center's website to find more information. This has been Eliza Drotar for your RMR Sports Update. Today I'm joined here in KCSU with Facebook spokesperson Kaylee Susser. So first, Kaylee, would you mind introducing yourself? Hi, I'm Kaylee Susser, and I'm a product manager for Facebook Campus. Would you mind telling me a little bit about the purpose and intentions of the new Facebook Campus program? Yes, uh, really excited to. So Facebook Campus recently expanded our pilot to a bunch of new schools, um, including Colorado State. So we're really excited. Um, Facebook Campus launched a year ago when we saw this need of students to really connect with their college communities, especially with schools being remote or hybrid. We're really missing out on that connection aspect to meet other students, um, join groups, or even have virtual events. So with that feedback in mind, we created Facebook Campus, which is a dedicated space for student life within the Facebook app itself. So within there, you can find all of your groups and events in one place, in one campus feed, um, and even check out some of your fellow students in the directory to find similarities like similar majors or classes that they're taking. Facebook Campus hasn't launched every single college and university in the U.S., so why did CSU really get chosen to help pilot this program in its second round this year? Yes, so we know that not every university is the same, so we take a bunch of different factors into consideration when looking at this upcoming expansion that we just had. We were seeing from your school that a bunch of students were already using Facebook groups and events in really cool ways, and we wanted to be able to have those students do it even easier with Facebook Campus all in one place. So what are some of the goals that Facebook really has in using Facebook Campus to connect students to their uh, campus community? Yeah, so our goal is to be the best place for students to engage in everyday life. And we know for college students, a huge part of that is meeting each other. Um, We heard feedback, especially from freshmen, that it's great to know who's in your classes before you're even in that class. So a great thing about Facebook Campus is that if you put in what classes you're taking, you can find other people taking those classes and connect with them earlier, or even people that might be in the same dorm as you. In the past year, a lot of students and other adults and youth have really felt this new stress when it comes to safety online. And I was wondering how Facebook... compares with other social media in terms of those safety guidelines and um, community guidelines? So at Facebook Campus, we utilize all of Facebook's integrity features and our community standards do apply to Facebook Campus. So we remove any content that violates any of Facebook's community standards. But we also additionally have a bullying prevention center within Facebook Campus itself, where we link a ton of different resources that have been really well verified. So if you make a Facebook Campus account, you can go in and check those out and have all of those resources at your disposal. Many Colorado State University students did see a little opt-in option on the notification on their phone, but if they didn't see that, or maybe if their app closed out, how can they access the Facebook Campus program through the app or online at the website? Yeah, great question. So the best way for students to be able to access Facebook Campus is they can go to the bookmarks within the Facebook app, or they can just search Campus itself. From there, students will go to the dedicated tab for Facebook Campus, put in their EDU verified email, and start engaging with other classmates. Many of Colorado State University students are first or second years who either weren't on campus or were only online for their first year of classes, as well as transfer students who may be coming from a school that was completely online or just a school where they had a hard time making any connections. 
So how does Facebook Campus really help those students in particular to build a new community, even with some of the barriers, like just some social barriers, for example, or taking classes completely online and not really coming and seeing everyone in person yet? So we think that the main benefits are our campus feed to see everything happening on your university in one place. All of your groups, events, and clubs are right there. So you can get all of your updates in real time and see them all in one place instead of a bifurcative experience across a few apps or different platforms and things like that. We also think that the directory feature is gonna be really great for students to meet each other. Like you were saying, those freshmen and transfer students are really looking for connections and ways to meet. And we think by highlighting commonalities of things that you put on your campus profile will be a really great way to do that. As I started to mention before, a lot of our students really are fully online or they have other barriers. So for example, some adult learners live pretty far from campus and might be really busy taking care of uh, their kids, their job. So they might not have the time or energy to come to clubs. And then same with students who might live further away who only commute to campus for class. So how does this really help those students really connect to their other students outside of class and outside of these in-person clubs that might be too taxing to get to geographically? Yeah. So we actually built this a year ago when most schools were pretty remote. So we made sure to keep in mind that students could stay connected to each other, even if they're not in person or a bit remote. So we think that campus will be really great for people to kind of oversee that remote aspect and just see those commonalities, which we think we're really strong at. So on your profile, you can do major classes, hometown, clubs, anything you're really interested in. Um, And we think that by highlighting all of those things, it'll be a lot easier for people to not be afraid to make that first reach out and to make a friend. As many know, Facebook Campus really um, has a lot of similarities to Facebook's original intention as a student-based platform. So how do you think that this really connects Facebook back to its roots and helps create those campus connections once again? Yeah, it's a bit of a throwback. Um, It's really funny for us and really great for us to all work on. Um, Facebook started 16 years ago in a dorm room by a college student. Um, So we're really excited to take Facebook back to its roots there. Uh, Facebook really expanded from this college specific platform to what it is today, which is such a global platform. Uh, We're really excited to kind of anchor on that original mission that Facebook had to bring college communities back together. So we've seen really promising things so far. That's why we're expanding our pilot and we're excited to see how even more students start to use it. So here at CSU, we have Ramlink, which is really used to help students find clubs and organizations. It hosts the involvement fair online when it can't be held in person. Um, So how do you think that Facebook campus really opens up those opportunities for students who might be unfamiliar with that platform or just really hate the design of it for some reason, but are more comfortable with Facebook? We've seen a lot of ways that students have used Facebook campus already um, on other schools to get people involved in different clubs. We've seen virtual club events hosted, um, different groups for people that are interested in clubs. So we think that it's really possible that students could come to Facebook campus, start engaging in those ways um, to join different clubs or different interests. And then besides CSU. How many other colleges and universities around the country are starting to get involved with Facebook campus? We have over 200 schools involved right now, which we're really excited about. This is our biggest expansion yet. And we plan to continuously slowly roll out to more and more schools as we continue to get more and more positive feedback. And then before we go, is there anything else that you would really like to add about your work at Facebook, um, Facebook campus, or how social media is really impacting campuses? I think we're excited to just continuously roll out and see how students use it. Um, We've seen such really creative students do different groups and events that have brought their communities together. So we're excited to see how even more students use it and continue to build for them. Thank you so much for your time today. Awesome. It was great chatting with you. And then again, that was Kaylee Susser, a spokesperson from Facebook, to talk about the new Facebook campus program.
I'm Coda Babcock, and this is National News Highlights for Tuesday. Evacuations were ordered in South Lake Tahoe, California, due to the spread of a fire in the area. According to the Associated Press, fire officials in the region told all residents on the California side of Lake Tahoe to evacuate due to the fire threatening the mountain towns in the area. This region is especially packed with tourists at this time of year in preparation for Labor Day weekend, but the thick smoke impacted those plans this weekend. California Fire Division Chief Eric Schwab said, quote, To put it in perspective, we've been seeing about half a half mile of movement on the fire's perimeter each day for the last couple of weeks. And today, this has already moved at 2.5 miles on us, with no sign that it's starting to slow down, end quote. Some fire crews had to carry hoses by hand to fire spots from California's Highway 50 due to difficulty navigating terrain by vehicle, an especially difficult task considering that the region offered over 100 degree temperatures as they tried to hold the fire down. The U.S. military attacked a vehicle Sunday that an official said was an imminent threat to Kabul's international airport. According to a writer's team at the Associated Press, the strike killed civilians, including children. The strike occurred as the remains of 13 killed military personnel arrived at Dover Air Force Base following the first U.S. strike last week due to a suicide bombing at the Kabul airport. The 13 troops, along with 170 civilians or more, died in the suicide bombing. The Islamic State Khorasan, also known as ISIS-K, which operates in Afghanistan and Pakistan, claimed responsibility for the bombing. Previously, President Joe Biden spoke to relatives of the victims and is working on what he calls a dignified transfer to return soldiers' remains to their families. Following the state's being severely overwhelmed by COVID-19, Louisiana and Mississippi face a new struggle with Hurricane Ida. According to Rachel Treisman at National Public Radio, hospitals were already overcrowded by COVID-19 cases at the time when Ida hit, meaning that patients are needing to be transferred to hospitals with more vacancy. In southern Mississippi, this is especially apparent with critical care patients being moved to northern facilities for treatment. Roughly 60 patients will be evacuated due to flooding in Oceaner Health's facilities, Oceaner, in two of Oceaner Health's facilities. Oceaner Health is one of the largest hospital systems in Louisiana, and roof damage, electricity access, and more flooding are some of the primary issues causing evacuation. The European Union no longer recommends member nations to allow travel to American citizens due to COVID-19 spikes in the U.S. According to Evan Shen and Bailey Scholes at USA Today, the continent was slowly reopening to Americans starting in May due to vaccination options, adding the U.S. to its safe travel list in June. The European Council's criteria for safe travel includes, includes, quote, a stable or decreasing trend of new COVID cases, end quote. Over a period of two weeks... Updated guidance comes after the U.S. faces a fourth wave of COVID-19 due to the Delta variant, which is highly contagious and can impact vaccinated individuals. Only a bit over half the U.S. population is fully vaccinated, according to the Centers for Disease Control. That's all for National News Highlights. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. In about 15 minutes, I'll be back with COVID-19 updates. If you missed anything so far, be sure to check us out online at kcsufm.com news or on Spotify by searching KCSU News. This is Speaking Well. I'm your host, Greg Dickinson. This is the podcast about communication and everyday life. In each episode, we will talk with a communication expert and scholar and explore how communication research can provide resources for navigating complex interactions. We'll talk about relationships in politics, social media and film, public speaking, and private talk. In this podcast, we will offer straightforward but often challenging explorations about communication centrality to our lives. In this episode, I talk with Morgan Johnson. Morgan is an assistant professor in the Department of Communication Studies at Colorado State University. She researches discourses of racial injustice in the United States, with much of her work focusing on police violence. She is currently examining rhetorics of personhood and citizenship in policing oversight initiatives that followed the 2014 Ferguson unrest, including crowdsourced media databases, federal task force, civilian review boards, nonprofit organizations, and the mothers of the movement. Hey, Morgan, it's really great to have you with us today. I appreciate you taking time out of what is surely a busy time of the semester. Could you tell us a little bit about what you do at Colorado State University? 
Yeah, it's great to be here. Um, of course, I teach about rhetoric, race, and the relationship between the two for the Department of Communication Studies. Currently on my docket are the history and theory of rhetoric for undergraduate and graduate students. And in the spring, I will be offering race and communications in the United States as a 300 level course, which I shamelessly pitch to any undergraduates listening right now. Additionally, I research the language surrounding racialized violence in the United States, focusing primarily on policing. Great, thanks. Super excited for, for the class in the spring and, and thrilled to have you doing the, the history and theory of rhetoric right now. And I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about this research you've been doing. You've been writing about the way citizens have responded to, to state-sanctioned violence against people of color. What are some of the things that you've learned about how citizens have responded in the context of the killing of Michael Brown and the protests that followed in Ferguson? Yeah, I think the thing that I hold closest is really just how dedicated, resilient, and persistent people are, particularly against intense pushback. So as you mentioned, one group I've looked at closely is the media, which is an illuminating example because probably most known is the databases of the Washington Post and the Guardian, Fatal Force and accounted um, respectively. But those are both based on the work of an individual journalist in Reno, Nevada named Brian Burkhart, who spent years collecting this data on his own and with teams of internet crowdsourcers. And so that database set the foundation for the Washington Post and the Guardian, which has become the foundation for national federal attempts at collecting this data. And so we can really see the ways that groups are working individually, collectively, and even these large organizations toward the issue of police accountability. I've also looked at civilian review boards in cities that have had review boards instated or enhanced by consent decree. And talking to board members of the Baltimore Review Board, for example, they've really been dealing with power struggles in the past few years. While civilian review boards are supposed to be mechanisms of accountability, I think especially when federally decreed self-accountability in some ways, there are all kinds of government tensions that play out federally, locally. So the board really spends as much time fighting for the authority to be a meaningful entity as it does doing the kind of meaningful work that it does. And then I think the mothers of the movement individually and as a group are another amazing example of people who are responding really diversely and powerfully um, in doing legislation, in organizing, but also in doing memory work so that we don't forget those who have been lost or forget the kinds of sacrifices that people have made for them. Great. That's that's a super helpful way of thinking about the work that citizens are doing in, in such a wide variety of ways. Thank you for touching as well on the memory work, which connects us back a little bit to our previous podcast. So you've been writing about this work that can happen following the 2014. Obviously, here we are in 2020, and, and we continue to have the state sanctioned violence and, and the appropriate protests against that violence. As you survey the kind of post-Ferguson landscape, how, if at all, have our conversations about race, the citizens' responsibility in terms of systemic racism, how, how have they changed or, or stayed the same? You know, this is such a hard question. In some ways, I think it's changed quite a bit. Quite literally, my research trajectory is inspired by the life and death of Michael Brown. My program of research, my ethical commitments were born out of my experience of the Ferguson protests in 2014. And today we are two weeks out from the anniversary of the grand jury announcement. And back then, we only dreamed that defunding police departments could be part of mainstream discourse. On the other hand, my optimism is you know, perpetually tempered by the material fact of continued executions. Alongside conversations of divestment has been a resurgence in law and order rhetoric on the right and language of reform on the left. The current administration's police reform initiatives have largely been framed around law, order, and the support of law enforcement officers, which is not, not a response to communities' pleas for reduced policing and accountable police. And thus far, the new administration and even those further to the left, like Bernie Sanders, have largely challenged that position with pretty tepid discussion of reform. So it's a mixed bag, but I am reassured by the felt presence of those who are tirelessly pushing the conversation forward. 
yeah so what i hear you saying is that some some things that were kind of way outside of mainstream discourse in 2014 have, have at least gained some traction in terms of things that many of us talk about but but haven't really entered into institutional discourse have i kind of got that correct yeah yeah i think minneapolis is a great example whether or not there is transformation in their justice system and their police departments the fact that they had public deliberation about it the fact that this is something that the community is really engaged over i think is rather unpredictable from the perspective of 2014. i want to pivot a little bit super important conversation these things show up the racism that our concerns about policing show up in in higher education and in high schools, grade schools. You at Penn State, where you're finishing your graduate work, you did some really important work with mentoring those students of color. And I wonder if you could talk with us a little bit about that mentoring, especially in the context of the ongoing conflicts over race and state sanctioned violence in the US. Yeah, the Graduate Alliance for Diversity and Inclusion, we always, scuffed about whether it was gaddy or gaudy. Um, <laughs> to be sure, I was just one of a small team of folks who worked to get this to fruition. But about a year into my PhD program, uh, after a series of personal experiences and hearing stories from incoming students, there was a clear need to me for students on our campus, community support, access to facilities, programming. And so talking to my advisor, he got the college involved, uh, we convened a working group regularly for over a year and officially launched Gaddy in 2018. And with the support of the college, we were able to co-host speakers with other campus groups. We had reading groups. We were collating resources from different communities, both on campus and off campus, offering mentorship opportunities for undergraduates of color, particularly undergraduates of color who were interested in graduate school. And right before I left, we were successful in getting a graduate assistantship funded so that a graduate student now gets paid for the labor of sustaining the organization, which is important. And really, Gaddy is thriving since I left Penn State. Um, I'm on the mailing list, so I can tell from newsletters that they are more engaged than ever in issues like the ones we're discussing. In fact, they've been organizing around local issues, particularly one stemming back to March 2019 in State College police officers responding to a mental health crisis killed 29-year-old Osazi Azagi. And he was a former student at Penn State, the son of professors, a very valuable member of the community. And the community is still fighting for the names of the officers to be released to the public, for an independent investigation, for community divestment from the police department. And from what I can tell, Gaddy has been really supporting local organizers in this, namely the 320 Coalition. That's a really wonderful example, uh, wonderful may be the wrong word, a powerful example of the ways in which mentoring students in the university connects us to our communities, our surrounding communities. Yeah. When you think about that, when you reflect on the program that, that you helped start and that continues actively there at Penn State, what are some of the keys for those of us listening to the podcast for successful student mentoring the students of color? Uh, it's not a flashy answer, but I think most importantly, just listen. Don't assume you know what folks want or need. When we were establishing Gaddy, it was clear to us that there were needs, but we didn't want to take for granted that the needs of the working committee were the needs of all of the underserved students on campus, in the college, or even in our departments. And so we held a series of town halls over a year's time, maybe more, just asking graduate students what they were missing from their campus community, what would make their time in graduate school more fulfilling, less taxing. And I think that that is part of the success that the organization has had is just really always being open to feedback and always wanting to be supportive of the specific needs of members. Um, so I think always starting there, listening. Right. I really appreciate that. I find myself wanting to, to move directly to a solution without necessarily even knowing exactly what, what's at issue. And, and it feels like listening is an important part for me, for sure. Yeah, I think that's common for all of us. When, when someone has a need, we just want to, as quickly as we can, be able to fulfill it to solve the problem. Right. 
as we as we wrap up our conversation, Morgan, and we think about the ways in which the two parts of our conversation have kind of intertwined this work that you're doing on the public response to police violence and then this perhaps a little bit more intimate work on the mentoring in the university. What are some things that students, faculty, scholars, citizens navigating the U.S. public culture, what, what are one or two fundamental things we can think about to combat systemic racism in our context to, to make life maybe just a bit, bit more humane? Something I keep thinking about from episode four is when Katie Noblock said stay in learning mode. And so I would kind of piggyback off of that to say to keep learning and to keep unlearning. I think for us in the academy, we consider ourselves kind of professional learners, but it's just as easy to forget that learning can be a luxury and unlearning is a responsibility. This spring and summer, we saw a wave of people ordering books about anti-Blackness by Black people from Black-owned businesses. And sure, there were people who never picked those books up from the store or never cracked them open once they did. Sure, there is earned cynicism in the DEI workshop circuit, but I really don't believe that progress can come without knowledge. And I mean that richly, not just reading academic books or attending professional development, but we can learn so much by listening to people in our daily lives. And there are a lot of people who have been talking for a long time and who want to be heard. So I would say that's definitely one. And relatedly, in doing our homework, we find that there are community leaders aplenty. So getting involved in our communities and finding those who are already doing the work and letting them take the lead, learning to support. But honestly, there's one most important thing that I've been thinking about, particularly as the election came to pass, and that's just keep thinking about it. Don't forget what it's like to not be able to look away don't pretend that the traumas of the Trump presidency have been an aberration. Definitely exhale, definitely rest, but please don't stop. Oh, the, those are super powerful. I'm, I'm finding myself as I am every week when I uh, work on this podcast, moved by, by your words and your, your commitment. I love that idea of learning and unlearning. Uh, and I know in my own life that those two things are, are twined together learning new stuff, listening listening to new voices, and then unlearning many things that I've, I've been taught over the years. Uh, Morgan, I really, really appreciate you taking time to, to share with us, to have this conversation with me and with our audiences. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you. Speaking Well is a production of the Department of Communication Studies and the College of Liberal Arts at Colorado State University. Carol Bush as the producer and the podcast is recorded and engineered at the studios of KCSU at Colorado State University. I'm your host, Greg Dickinson. Until next time, be well. I'm Coda Babcock, and these are COVID-19 updates for Tuesday. Colorado State University reported four new cases Monday among students and none among staff, slowing down from the more severe peak of positive student and staff COVID-19 tests earlier or later last week. Since May 2020, Colorado State University reported over 3,400 cases of the virus among students, staff, and faculty. Masks are required on campus, and non-vaccinated individuals must be screened for COVID-19 twice a week. Additionally, Students who have recently been exposed to COVID-19 or are showing symptoms are required to report to the university. For more information, go to covid.colostate.edu. As you may be heard earlier in local news, Larimer County and the CDC are reporting high levels of community transmission for COVID-19. Larimer County recommends that in high transmission risk periods, residents take the following precautions. Get vaccinated as soon as possible if you are not already. Wear masks indoors and in crowded outdoor settings regardless of vaccination status. Be sure your mask has a snug fit, and consider wearing a KN95 mask or surgical disposable mask. Disposable masks can be adjusted by tying knots in the ear loops. 
postpone all gatherings if possible, and if the event must occur, consider requiring all attendees to be vaccinated or limiting the number of invited household households. If the event is indoors, consider moving it outdoors. Get tested for COVID-19 if you have not or if you have any concerns over exposure or symptoms, and encourage remote working options for all employees. The high-risk score currently reflects a variety of issues facing the county in terms of COVID-19. Larimer County hospitals are at capacity, meaning that there are no longer enough hospital beds to treat patients. The county's case rate sits at 230 per 100,000 residents, and in the past week, 7.6% of all tests for COVID came back positive. The county reports a total of nearly 31,000 cases and over 260 deaths since reporting began. The state of Colorado reports over 610,000 cases of COVID-19 and over 7,000 deaths due to the virus. Over 3.3 million Coloradans are fully vaccinated for COVID-19. NPR says that the United States has a total of nearly 38.8 million cases of COVID-19 and over 637,000 deaths. On Sunday, deaths increased by 277 people, and cases increased by over 36,000. In the past two weeks, cases went up by over 18%, while deaths increased by over 97%. Information from today's segment comes from Colorado State University, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, the Centers for Disease Control, and National Public Radio's Coronavirus Tracker. That's all for COVID-19 updates. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Kota Babcock, and this is Tech News for Tuesday. Elizabeth Holmes, who promised a technologically, technological medical advancement that would reduce the need for blood labs, starts to face her fraud trail Tuesday. According to Bobby Allen at National Public Radio, Holmes founded Silicon Valley startup Theranos with her ex-boyfriend Ramesh Bawani. Theranos cl- claimed to require just a finger prick to test for a variety of conditions. NPR says that the incorrect diagnoses included a positive HIV test, blood work that indicated a pregnant woman had miscarried, and more. Court documents were unsealed Saturday, in which Holmes's legal team said she is likely to accuse ex-boyfriend Balwani of manipulating as well as psychologically and sexually abusing her during Theranos' time in business. This claim would imply that the abuse impacted her mental state, harming her decision-making abilities with the company. Holmes was 19 when she started Theranos. Apple is changing its app communications options amid a $100 million settlement. According to Rishi Yengar of CNN Business, this is part of a class action lawsuit with, sm- with smaller developers. Thursday, Apple said, quote, Developers can use communications such as email to share information about payment methods outside of their iOS app. End quote. These relaxed regulations on communication require that these communications come with user consent. But this means that developers can now collect payment without having to pay commission to Apple through in-app purchase guidelines. The class action lawsuit came because of developer Donald Cameron and Pure Sweat Basketball accusing Apple of anti-competitive behavior due to its monopolization over app downloads and the requirement for developers to give them a cut of in-app purchase income. That's all for Tech News. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. Now for Weird News. Hello there. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and sometimes things need to get a little bit weird. So here's a few of the weirdest stories I've found from around the world. Danish researchers say that they accidentally found a new island after getting lost during a survey expedition. According to the Associated Press, the scientists from the University of Copenhagen initially thought that they had arrived at Udak, an island discovered by a Danish survey team in 1978, to collect samples during an expedition that was conducted in July, but instead they wound up on an undiscovered island farther north. Expedition, uh, expedition leader Morton Rash of the university's Department of Geosciences and Natural Resource Management said that, quote, We were convinced that the island we were standing on was Udak, which until it was registered, which until now was registered as the northernmost island. 
But when I posted photos of the island and its coordinates on social media, a number of American island hunters went crazy and told me that it couldn't be true. End quote. Island hunters are known for known as adventurers whose hobby it is to search for unknown islands. The unnamed island is 853 yards north of Udak, an island off the Cape Morris Jessup, the northernmost point of Greenland and one of the most northerly uh, points of land on Earth. The tiny island, apparently discovered as a result of shifting pack ice, is about 30 by 60 meters in size and rises to about 3 or 4 meters or roughly 10 to 13 feet above sea level, the university said. The island consists primarily of small mounds of silt and gravel, according to Rash. He said it may be the result of a major storm that, with the help of the sea, gradually pushed material from the seabed together until an island formed. The island isn't expected to exist for a long time, Danish researchers said. A New Zealand COVID-19 conspiracy theory group is in disarray after only a single person showed up at their organized anti-lockdown protest. According to Matt Burroughs at News Hub New Zealand, police arrived at Aotea Square in Auckland, New Zealand to bring up, break up the demonstration on Friday after being alerted to chatter about it on social media, but told News Hub only one person arrived with the intention of protesting. A spokesperson said that, quote, police have been in the area and have spoken to one person who arrived intending to a- attend the protest. Police spoke to the individual who was encouraged to comply with alert level 4 restrictions and chose to leave, end quote. The turnout caused arguments within a, a prominent New Zealand conspiracy group, with one furious anti-lockdown protester turning on fellow members and demanding answers for the no-show, writing on the instant messaging service Telegram, quote, What the expletive ne- happened, New Zealand? Where were all you people? I was there only to see an empty Aotea Square. He continued, to those who made up this poster, you are gutless, yes, gutless, to not show up to the protest, end quote. Others laid the blame with the protest organizers for poor communication. They said they were confused about whether the protest was still on and remonstrated with fellow and demonstrated with fellow group members to step up their organizational skills in, quote, mobilize property properly. The plan to protest on Friday came from a Conspiracy Theory Instagram account, which called on people, quote, who see the bigger picture, end quote, to get involved, despite saying it wasn't involved in the protest and had no idea who was behind it. Auckland Police Commissioner Andrew Coster later said the police had, quote, a low tolerance for unlawful gatherings, but particularly in the context for a Delta variant outbreak, end quote. The closure of the restaurant chain Waffle House has been observed to be a significant indicator of the severity of hurricanes and has signaled that Hurricane Ida may be particularly powerful. According to Jordan Mendoza at USA Today, For those not familiar with the popular restaurant chain, Waffle House has been known for staying open 24-7 regardless of extreme weather. The restaurant's reputation for remaining open resulted in the then-FEMA administrator Craig Fugate coining the Waffle House Index in 2011. When a tornado hit Joplin, Missouri that year, two Waffle Houses stayed open despite the tornado that caused $2.8 billion worth of damage and killed 158 people in the area. The Waffle House Index has three tiers, green, yellow, and red. Green means the store will operate fully, yellow means the restaurants will be open, but the menu or power is limited, and red means the store will be closed. The index has been used to predict how bad extreme weather conditions will affect an area. As Hurricane Ida made landfall on the Louisiana coastline Sunday, Waffle House's projected to be in the Category 4 storm's path have closed. As of Sunday afternoon, five Waffle House locations have closed in southern Louisiana, according to the company's website. Twitter users, including Fugit, shared images of the Waffle House's close, noting that the closures mean the storm will have catastrophic effects. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration tweeted on Sunday Ida would cause, quote, considerable to life-threatening flash in urban flooding and significant river flooding impacts, end quote. Last year, 18 Waffle House locations closed when Hurricane Laura hit Texas and Louisiana, which resulted in 14 deaths. That's it for Weird News. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. This is the Rocky Mountain Review. And now for the weather. Today, we experienced mostly sunny skies, a high of a scorching 95 degrees with a low of 66, and low winds with no chance of rain. 
Wednesday will be pretty similar with mostly cloudy skies, a high of 92 with a low of 64 with moderate wind speeds, and about a 20% chance of rain. Thursday will be completely different from earlier in the week with a high of 83 and a low of 63 with scattered thunderstorms and low to moderate wind speeds. And for Friday, you'll have to check in and listen to the Rocky Mountain Review from 4 to 5 p.m. on Thursday, only on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. And if you can't make it to the show, be sure to check us out on Spotify at KCSU News or on our website at kcsufm.com news. I'm Coda Babcock, and information from this segment comes from the Weather Channel. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. Thank our guests today, as well as Portia Cook, Thomas Taylor, Stephanie Keel, Stevie Jones, Hannah Copeland, Addison Lambert, Elliot Hutchinson, Eric Zhang, Brennan Cole, Lindsay Johnson, Eliza Droder, Maddie Erskine, Samuel Bailey, Ben Kruger, Ben Haney, Anna Schwab, Marie Tanksley, Melissa Ronaldo, Dixon Lawson, Peter Walk, Taylor Sandal, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Ivy. And finally, we couldn't do this without you, dear listener. Thank you. And with that, we'll see you next time. <laughs>